Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will finally conclude our discussion of the second fitna. With the defeat of Muhtar al-Thaqafi and his Hashemite partisans, the contest came down to the Umayyad Abdul Malik and his Qurayshi rival Ibn Zubayr. Episode 24 How the Best Man Won. lot to get to today. I really want to start with a corrective on our last episode. It's more a note, really, pertaining to my overall depiction of Mukhtar al-Thaqafi. If you read al-Tabari, and either of our other two sources for that matter, a very different picture will emerge. Mukhtar's religious novelties and his use of non-Arab warriors isn't given too much attention. You'll instead find long descriptions of tribal feuds and, of course, lots of poetry. Now that's all keeping in line with Arab culture, but I'm trying to keep an eye on the long game. And the Mukhtar I'm describing relies on perspectives gleaned from other sources, ones more concerned with revolutionary movements within the early caliphates. They do not fail to see the importance of this precocious figure, and they spend a lot of time fleshing out his many conflicting accounts. I might as well describe some of the other stuff I've left out while covering Mukhtar. Khurasan, for example. If you checked out the map from our previous episode, you may have noticed that the entire area east of Iraq was designated as being under Ibn Zubayr's control. I guess that's not a total lie, but keep in mind that the further the Arabs got from their homelands, the more difficult claims of control were to prove. So in Khurasan, for example, the armies were just doing their thing, and when told that Yazid had died, the Umayyads had fallen, and Ibn Zubayr was caliph now, some commanders just went, yeah, that's fine. They had their men pledged to Ibn Zubayr and then went back to business as usual. Now that's not how it went down everywhere. Some Umayyad commanders tried holding their positions, others escaping back to Syria to see what was going on and if they could be of any help. The tribal war between Tamim and the Azdrabi'a alliance had spread to Khurasan as well, and there are narrations about the Tamim kicking out a governor because he'd installed his son in charge of Herat instead of one of their elders. But despite all this variety, the reason Khurasan could be said to be part of Ibn Zubayr's territory was because of the great general Al-Muhallab ibn Sufra. He had been fighting in Khurasan for a very long time. He'd lost an eye conquering its frontier cities alongside Sa'id ibn Uthman, and is credited with introducing the stirrup to the Arab armies, a military technology he picked up fighting the expert horsemen of Central Asia. Stirrups changed the game as far as cavalry effectiveness, with them, a rider could maintain his balance while using melee weapons, making Muhallab's armies the most effective in the Ummah. When Muhallab heard of Ibn Zubayr's bid for caliph, he made the trip back to Mecca to pledge in person. This delighted Ibn Zubayr, who made him governor of Khurasan and sent him back to rule the province in his name. Khurasan never got its new master, however, because on his way back the Karajite threat, a perennial problem for Basra, flared really dangerously, and the Tamim prevailed upon Muhallab to stay behind and help fight it off. That's why he was in Basra when Mus'ab made his move against Mukhtar. To round things out, I'd ignored some narrations about a failed trick Mukhtar tried to pull on Ibn Zubayr. 
there was a plague in Basra at some point, and Abdullah ibn Zubayr overhauled Mecca's shrine, the Kaaba. To justify the seemingly irreligious move, he cited a saying revealed by his aunt Aisha, mother of the faithful, that the Prophet had once told her that the Kaaba had to one day be rebuilt larger and with two doors instead of one. With this, we are mostly caught up with the headlines mentioned in our sources, so corrective over, let's get back to our narrative. The tribal conflict, epitomized by the stranglehold Qarqasiya held on his position vis-à-vis Iraq, was only one of the many threats facing Abdul Malik in Damascus. Another major problem for him was Byzantium, which had gone on the attack now that the caliphate was distracted with these internal matters. We're told that Abdul Malik paid 1,000 gold dinars every Friday for peace with his imperial neighbor, and the breathing room to focus on Ibn Zubayr and the Adnanis. You may recall that Muawiyah had made a similar peace back during the first fitna, and I'm going to point out whenever it seems like Abdul Malik was looking to Muawiyah's example for inspiration. After treating with the Byzantines, Abdul Malik prepared to lead his forces in person to face the armies of Iraq. He camped about 20 miles east of Aleppo, upriver from Qirqasiyah. The fighting with Mus'ab's armies was sporadic, indecisive, and lasted between 20 and 40 days. There were lots of feuds, but the most interesting thing about this engagement is Abdul Malik's borrowing of yet another tactic from Muawiyah. He reached out to Basran tribes, promising them that he would appreciate them a lot more than Ibn Zubayr, especially if they should help him prevail by rebelling against their current government. He thus gained a small faction, which caused some considerable disarray for Mus'ab, who was too far away to do much about it. We're not told who had the advantage when Abdul Malik called off his attack and retreated to Damascus. He had received news of an emergency even more pressing than this war. His kin, Al-Ashtaq, had rebelled against his authority and called for people to pledge their allegiance to him as their caliph. As usual, there are lots of conflicting narrations about what happens next, and I'm going to go ahead and skip all the controversy. Abdul Malik somehow got Al-Ashtaq to open the city gates, and within a short while personally slew him. Al-Ashtaq's loyalists caused some problems, and many had to be killed, but within a few months, Abdul Malik was giving public speeches once again. After dealing with this hiccup in the Umayyad hierarchy, Abdul Malik wanted to resume his aborted invasion of Iraq but the previous summer's stalemate meant he had to find a new strategy. He knew that the best way to attack Iraq was to start from the top, taking Mosul, then Kufa, then Basra. The problem was still Qirqasiya, which made it impossible to take the traditional route to victory by effectively blocking Syria's army. If you're wondering how it was that Ubaidullah had made it to Iraq, taking Mosul back in 685, then it was by going through Jazeera, rounding Qirqasiya from the north. He could only do that because he had a Mesopotamian tribal ally. You know, the same one who betrayed him to disastrous effect. I had said that Zufar, the chief of the Adnanis, had started many of the long feuds between the two tribal confederacies after fleeing to Qirqasiya, but the man who truly got things rolling was this Adnani chief named Umayr, whose betrayal of the Umayyads led to the failure of their first invasion of Iraq. Umair killed a couple dozen men from Kelb upon his defection. They took their revenge by killing 50 Adnanis from another tribe, after which Umair killed a whopping 1,000 before fleeing to Qarqasiya. A short while later, Umair started another epic feud with an important Christian tribe called Taghlib. It was Al-Akhtal's tribe, 
and there are narrations of the court poet himself being taken captive for a length of time. Zufar, leader of the Adnani alliance, actually tried cooling things down, but he was liable for his Adnani kin, and there was no getting off this ride once it got started. In light of how important a role Qirqasiyah was playing in frustrating his plans, Abdul Malik decided to lead an assault fully against it. The old Roman fortress withstood repeated attacks, and after it proved impregnable, Abdul Malik again looked to Muawiyah for inspiration. Hoping to reunite both tribal factions in his service as the first Umayyad caliph once had, Abdul Malik wrote to Zufar with generous promises of wealth, clemency, and most importantly, influence within the state. That Abdul Malik felt confident enough to propose these concessions speaks volumes about how much power he held, dispelling previous notions of the Kelb being in control of the Caliphate. He may have only had this opportunity because in 689, shortly after Abdul Malik's first failed assault, Umair had been killed by the Taghlib following a long battle at the end of which Zufar finally abandoned the reckless Adnani chief. Zufar accepted Abdul Malik's offer, a critically important development we'll talk further about soon. His only stipulation was that he be allowed to sit out Abdul Malik's war against Abdullah ibn Zubair, as Zufar had already pledged his allegiance to the latter and hated breaking his word. Following this breakthrough, Iraq was suddenly back in play. Mus'ab must have been caught off guard by the reconciliation between the Adnanis and the Umayyads because he wasn't in the best fighting shape. It wasn't even his fault. I blame his brother Abdullah back in Mecca. After Mus'ab's victory over Mukhtar, the caliph dismissed him as governor of Iraq, replacing him with his own son Hamza. Hamza was a disaster, and he bailed within a year as his mismanagement led to repeated Karajite successes, which quickly threatened Basra and angered its citizens. When Mus'ab was put back in charge, he had to commit Al-Muhallab ibn Sufra, by far his best general to the fight against the Karajites, making the hero unavailable for the looming confrontation against Abdul Malik and his armies. Before making his way to Mosul, Abdul Malik made a small detour north to Nisibis. This Sassanid fortress town had 2,000 surviving partisans of Mukhtar holed up inside, and they had used the town's fortifications to successfully repel repeated Zubayrid attempts at dislodging them. These men couldn't wait to get back at Mus'ab for the massacre he'd carried out in Kufa after his victory against Mukhtar years earlier. They eagerly joined Abdul Malik's armies. In my book, this is another strong endorsement of the Umayyad's shrewdness. He sought support wherever he could and took his time to make sure he had the best advantage before moving forward. If you think about it, such bold decision-making was only possible because the caliph led his own armies and was there to make these creative decisions in person. I realize that my singular focus on Mukhtar last time made me start this episode with a corrective, but I still want to stop and say a few words about these fascinating survivors of his movement. They were called the Qaysanites, and the most endorsed story is that the name came from their leader, Abu Amr Qaysan, a mawla said to be Mukhtar's personal bodyguard who had somehow survived his last stand. This guy seemed to emulate Mukhtar closely. He claimed to be an agent of a higher power, deified Mukhtar and the Hashemites, and developed the millenarian dogma further. What's noteworthy here is the fecundity of Mukhtar's religious framework. He set a precedent when he presented himself as more than just a first among equals, as someone chosen. 
Back when he did it, he was just making the most out of the overwhelming Hashemite support in Iraq when he knew the Hashemites themselves were out of the running following their massacre. He may have been leaning on pre-existing notions of Hashemite purity and divine favor when he pretended to them, but this set an example for later imitators to take liberties with redefining religious precepts. Unlike the rest of the Ummah, adherents of these movements believed they were living in the messianic age of the end of days, that their leaders had a divine purpose and thus were privy to deeper religious insights than ordinary humans could aspire to. So anyway, these Qaysanites joined Abdul Malik as his next target was Mus'hab, the man who'd killed Mukhtar and executed thousands of their brothers in what is decried as a dishonorable slaughter in our sources. Like we already mentioned, Mus'ab couldn't use Al-Muhallab ibn Sufra against the Umayyads as he needed him to deal with the Karajites, but at least he still had Ibrahim ibn Malik al-Ashtar, who commanded considerable authority in Kufa. This was great, because Mus'ab couldn't really rely on the Basrans all that much. Many of them held a grudge against him for the heavy-handed way he dealt with the city after some of its tribes had reached out to Abd al-Malik a couple years back. The two armies met close to a monastery of the Eastern Church north of Kufa, in October of 691. Narrations don't report any army sizes, but we are told of a conversation between Mus'ab and Ibrahim ibn al-Ashtar. The latter revealed to the governor that he had received a letter from Abdul Malik, trying to tempt him to switch sides. The two agreed that this could only mean that Abdul Malik had sent letters to everyone, and that those who hadn't been honest with Mus'ab were being secretive because they intended to defect. In a different narration, we are told that Abdul Malik had indeed been very busy trying to get everyone on his side, and that he promised them all governorship of Isfahan, so clearly he had no intentions of actually following through. Again, Muawiyah reincarnate. The narration about Mus'ab and Ibrahim is only unlikely because it ends up being so accurate. Ibrahim led his men on the attack at the start of the battle, but was killed by Abdul Malik's brother. Many of Mus'ab's allies deserted or refused to engage, including the head of his cavalry and other important leaders. We're told Abdul Malik reached out with a treaty, but that Mus'ab, who is always depicted respectfully as the classic Arab leader, found it impossible to surrender. He was killed fighting for his brother's control of Iraq, and Abdul Malik entered Kufa and accepted pledges from Iraq's many tribal elders. There's a fitting narration with which we can end our discussion of this warring in Iraq. It's about the moment Abdul Malik was handed the head of Mus'ab ibn Zubayr while in the governor's palace in Kufa. A man there stared openly at him and exclaimed to the caliph that he had seen on that same bed which Abdul Malik laid on now, Ubaidullah holding Al-Husayn bin Ali's head, then Mukhtar holding Ubaidullah's, then Mus'ab holding Mukhtar's, and now him holding Mus'ab's. It's a testament to how fickle Iraqi fortunes were during the Second Fitna, and just how complicated the once united Ummah's divisions had grown. That narration leaves out the Karajites, though, who were a huge deal in Iraq and the East. A different one tells of Al-Muhallab facing off the Azariqa Karajites to the east of Basra in the marshlands of Khuzistan, where the two forces faced each other for months with painfully slow progress. It relates that the Karajites had heard of Abdul Malik's victory over Mus'ab before Al-Muhallab and the Basrans. To mess with their foes, they provoked them by asking repeatedly in whose name they fought and how he was better than the Umayyads, 
to which the Basrans replied by affirming Mus'ab's honor and denouncing Abdul Malik's wretchedness. In a few short days, however, after news of Abdul Malik's triumph had arrived, Al-Muhallab was compelled to switch sides back to the Umayyads. The account concludes with the Karajites skewering Al-Muhallab and the Basrans for being untrue to their word, making them no better than mercenaries. This is one of the first narrations which casts the Karajites in a positive light, something that just doesn't happen before the second fitna. As the Caliph had become the Quraishi with the most power, asserted through bloody intra-Muslim warfare, Karajite defiance stopped seeming like willful disunity and almost began to be admired for its autonomy and independent-mindedness. We're now nearing the end of the second fitna. Without Mus'ab, Iraq, and Al-Muhallab, Abdullah ibn Zubayr barely had any power left. He couldn't even count on the entire peninsula, as its Karajites, the Najdat, followers of Najd al-Hanafi, of the eastern city of Yamama, had taken over everything but Mecca and Medina at various points. By staying in the Hejaz, Abdullah was clearly appealing to the precedent set by the first caliphs, like his grandfather Abu Bakr, but it made him completely ineffectual at waging war. His demeanor and pedigree may have proved decisive back when the Ummah was united behind Quraysh, but ever since the empires had been defeated, there had been a clear need to foster local alliances in order to rule the caliphate's many domains. A big part of Abdul Malik's success is that he used the war to go around and expand his coalition, basically rebuilding what Muawiyah had once put together. Meanwhile, Ibn Zubayr had turned down the opportunity to return to Damascus with its armies already pledged to him years before. Abdullah ibn Zubayr was so powerless at this stage that Abdul Malik decided that his time was better used back in Damascus. After the tribal elders of Iraq gave their pledges, he headed back to the capital with most of his soldiers, leaving one of his brothers as governor of Kufa and another Umayyad in charge of Basra. He also sent a small army of 3,000 men under the leadership of Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf al-Thaqafi. This commander will prove to be an extremely influential figure, and although the controversy surrounding his behavior and legacy will muddle things for us, it is a sure sign of the impact that Hajjaj had on his generation. The only time he's mentioned before this is when we're told that he and his father numbered among the few survivors of the army Marwan had sent to attack the Hajjaz from Syria about five years back. The two only managed their escape by hiding behind a horse as they retreated, but that Hajjaj had put all that behind him now and was coming for his revenge. I long to follow the Caliph back to Damascus and talk about things besides this interminable warring, but let's just finish up the second fitna today. I feel like I'm giving the impression that Abdul Medic focused only on fighting and neglected all other aspects and responsibilities of rule while there were those who opposed him within the Ummah. This is far from the truth, and his ability to prioritize and reprioritize his many duties as their needs for attention varied up and down was a part of his genius and administration. I'll have no problems finding examples of the Caliph's aptitude next time. For now, just keep in mind that the second fitna was over all but technically, following the death of Mus'ab and the fall of Iraq. The 3,000 troops which Al-Hajjaj commanded may sound like a small force, but these were all battle-hardened veterans towing siege equipment and ready for a fight. Ibn Zubayr once had large armies in the peninsula, ones that would have had little difficulty repelling these Syrians, 
but Karajite thought and power had spread throughout the east and center of the desert like a wildfire. The Nejda Karajites had not only taken over Ta'if at some point, but their leaders even attended the annual pilgrimage one year despite Ibn Zubayr's full control of Mecca and Medina. There was just nothing the Zubayrids could do about it. The Karajites showed up in large numbers and just did their thing. Ironically, it was Abdul Malik who ended the threat they posed, though a little too late for Ibn Zubayr to capitalize on their downfall. The Umayyad had written to their leader with promises of clemency and power in exchange for support, some accounts saying he had even received his son for a while, and rumors of a budding relationship between the two surfaced at a bad time. There was already an undercurrent of resentment against the Karajite leader within his movement, and his communications with Damascus were taken as proof of how he was just like the rest of these politicians, and his supporters killed him themselves, after which the Karajites sort of disbanded into a bunch of renegade tribes. This is probably a good time to briefly discuss the Karajite movement. We can learn a lot by paying attention to the way the ideology spread after its original pronouncement following the stalemate at Sufin in the first fitna. The men who would come to be known as the Karajites were the ones who saw in that battle proof that Quraysh was willing to waste Muslim blood to decide which of its princes sits on its throne, as they unsympathetically put it. They had plenty of legitimate grievances, but so did many in the Ummah at the time, thus the first fitna. What set the Karajites apart was their readiness to turn their backs on Quraysh, readiness verging on eagerness. You may recall how the first caliph, Abu Bakr, had to fight the wars of apostasy after many tribes severed their ties to the Ummah following the Prophet's death. These were tribes based far from the Hejaz, where those who had witnessed Muhammad's journey seemed to have felt a deeper appreciation for the religious bonds the Prophet had forged. I often talk about the Arabs as if they were one group for the sake of convenience, but the tribes far away from where revelation had taken place, who converted late towards the end of the Prophet's life, had a different understanding of what it meant to be part of the Ummah. It is no coincidence that the areas which walked away from the Qurayshi-centric Ummah following Muhammad's death were the same ones where Karajite doctrine spread unchecked during the second fitna. These were Arabian tribes discontented with the way Quraysh had made a mess of things. They didn't want to replace the caliphate with anything. They just wanted to live as they pleased without having to listen to what some king of the Arabs had to say about it. They felt this took nothing away from their Islam. Though not an especially religious bunch, they were as proud of their being Muslim as they were of being Arabs, both elements they considered essential to their identity. Okay, enough of that. Let's go put Ibn Zubayr out of his misery. He was in an increasingly hopeless situation and had a hard time asserting authority over anything outside of the Hejaz, at times even there. Al-Hajjaj's force wasn't the only incursion Abdul Malik made into the peninsula, and there are stories about various confrontations in which Ibn Zubayr's modest forces, just a few hundred men, run into Syrians along the edges of the desert. Once, Abdul Malik had sent a commander with orders to camp outside of Medina, and the army he brought with him so scared its governor that he ran away to Mecca. Without orders to take the city, the commander wrote back to the caliph, who asked him to withdraw as it seemed like there was nothing to worry about. We're told Al-Hajjaj's army first stayed in his hometown of Ta'if for a few months. Then, in early 692, just weeks before the annual pilgrimage, he set up his trebuchets on some hills outside Mecca and laid siege to the city. He was shamed for his bombardment of the city during the Hajj, 
and so he let up while it took place, but got back to it as soon as it was over. Some say the siege lasted five months, others fifty nights, but both agree that by the end of it, starvation had led most of the city's inhabitants to surrender to Al-Hajjaj, who accepted their pledges for Abdul Malik and the Umayyads. We're told that Ibn Zubayr had tried managing the famine by keeping stores of food and feeding the people, but that by the end of it, he had to resort to killing his own horse for meat. He convinced two of his sons to abandon him and pledge to Abdul Malik, but a third would not leave his side. Our sources give us many sad, dramatic, and noble scenes while relaying Ibn Zubayr's ugly end. We find narrators astounded by how steadily Ibn Zubayr prayed while boulders were hurled at him and rocks fell between his arms. There is a moving dialogue he has with his mother, the daughter of Abu Bakr, about whether he should fight for what he believes to be just despite facing impossible odds. She commended his steadfastness and he thus prepared himself for his last stand. Finally, there are gruesome depictions of what was done to his body after he fell in battle and heaps of shame for Al-Hajjaj's wanton cruelty. So ended the second fitna. If we zoom out, like really zoom out, we can think of it as a settling along many of the fault lines which first appeared as the Ummah expanded, but especially as a resolution of the first fitna. With his clumsy slaying of Al-Husayn and the Hashemites, Yazid ibn Muawiyah risked losing the Umayyads all the influence which his father had so carefully accrued for the clan. Two things happened as a result. First, the other Qurayshi clans now stood a real chance at regaining power, especially since they were united behind Ibn Zubayr. And second, many grew disillusioned with the Ummah, leading to a resurgence of tribal enmities and Karajite movements. Ibn Zubayr could have united the entire caliphate. Indeed, he almost had back when Ibn Bahdad was desperately looking for an Umayyad for his coalition to champion. That's the crux of the matter, I think. To rule a caliphate this large, one needed to be personally allied to the powerhouses outside the peninsula, and Ibn Zubayr chose to stick to the precedent set by the first three caliphs. It may have worked back in the early caliphate, when the only Arabs who mattered in Syria and Iraq were from the peninsula's tribes themselves, but that was no longer the case. When you compare Ibn Zubayr's leadership to that of Abdul Malik, who on top of his indispensable alliance with the Kelb wisely sought to grow his coalition by bringing the Adnanis back into the Umayyad tent, then personally led his armies in Iraq, writing even Mus'ab's commanders and the Karajites to try and attain their submission, it becomes clear who picked the correct strategy. With Abdul Malik's victory, the Umayyads were back in charge of the Caliphate. The second fitna exhausted the rebellious branches of the Ummah's many disaffected tribes and dashed the hopes of any Qurayshi clans trying to reach the top. Umayyad power proved more resilient than anyone had imagined and no group could rival the united Syrians on the battlefield. We'll talk more about what the capable Abdul Malik did with his hard-won reunification of the Ummah next time, here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.